Welcome to Then Again with Ken and Glenn. Which one is which? We don't know yet. <laughs> I am Glenn Kyle. I am the Executive Director of the Northeast Georgia History Center here in Gainesville, Georgia. And I am Ken Johnston, the Curator of Education here at the Northeast Georgia History Center, also in Gainesville, Georgia. Well, this podcast has been an idea that Ken and I have had for quite some time, and now that we finally work at a place and have for some time... We we conned a donor into billing us a studio to make it happen. (laughs) Don't use that. (laughs) But but we're we're taking advantage of a studio here on site to to use our vast knowledge and talkative terms with each other (laughs) to make something that people might enjoy. It will be light. It will be serious. Well, hopefully it'll be entertaining and educational. Hopefully. Hopefully. At least one of those things will happen. (laughs) We won't know if it is or not until it's too late. I was born in North Georgia myself in in Blue Ridge in Fannin County and have always been interested in history since I knew what history was. Drifted around to several colleges before I finally graduated with a bachelor's in history from North Georgia College and began working at the Atlanta History Center. I was there for eight years and then a couple years after that I came up here, finished a master's in history also at North Georgia and have been here at the History Center for 10 years as the executive director. And uh, Ken talking now, in case you're wondering. Attended LaGrange College in LaGrange, Georgia, where I got a degree in English language and literature and speech communications and theater, thus guaranteeing I would be in a lower tax bracket my entire life. And, uh, you know, worked as an actor doing all the things, always having an interest in theater, and met Glenn uh, jousting at the Georgia Renaissance Festival in... Many years ago. Such good times. <laughs> yeah, Such good, good times. Um, 1997 or so, something like that. And uh, so we worked together at the Jazz for a while, and I was casting about for something new to do. And he said, hey, you know, there's an opening at the Atlanta History Center. And boom, I was then sucked into the wonderful world of living history and museum theater and have not looked back, because if you look back, they'll catch you. Today, listeners, we're talking about the film Casablanca. And we're kind of wanting to put the take on it, not of looking at it in the traditional way of, ah, we're film scholars discussing this film and discussing the cinematic merits and filmmaking prowess and all that sort of stuff, but really looking at it as someone who's interested in the history of the film and the history of the time the film was made in, because a modern audience looks at this film, and they're taking away certain things, like the wonderful performances, the snappy script, the beautiful cinematography, that sort of thing, but there are things that the audience in 1942 and 43 would have looked at and recognized as messages that you don't get today. And so that's really a lot of what we want to talk about, as well as just, you know, probably a lot of our favorite lines. They're going to creep in. It has to. But that's our thrust, really looking at it as as it may have been viewed when it was first released and some of the themes that they are not apparent to a modern audience. Yeah, the first time I saw Casablanca, I was, uh, I was in middle school, and this is before access on-demand kids, so it was a broadcast on television with commercials interspersed and everything. And I remember thinking, I had asked mom and dad about it, and I think, so it's, it's like a World War II movie. And it's like, oh, I like World War II movies. There'll be tanks and planes and battles <laughs> and things like that. So I, I, I sat down to watch it, and, you know, being in eighth or ninth grade, I didn't, I didn't quite get it at the time. I understood the setting that it was in, and I thought, well, this is a pretty good movie, but I think I had to get a few more years under my belt before I really began to not only appreciate it as a movie, but the more I studied about the 1930s and the the 40s and events leading up to World War II, I was like, oh, this is relevant. In the time that it was made, it was addressing things that were happening almost immediately. 
And I think that's one of the things that always struck me so strongly with it. I cannot imagine being in the Times and sitting in a theater watching newsreels about German troops rolling into somewhere and then watching a movie that directly addresses and reacts to those actions. So the first time I saw Casablanca, I believe, was uh, in the early 1980s at the Rhodes Cinema in Atlanta, Georgia. It was an old cinema that showed repertory and art house movies. But it was on a double bill with Key Largo. I mean, oh. what a fantastic way to be introduced to Casablanca by seeing it with Key Largo. You know, I was conversant, like Glenn, with, with World War II and some of its background, so you know, a lot of that stuff appealed to me. And then, of course, subsequently getting into the museum world and doing even more studies. One of the things you do in our profession, in the museum world, is you try to see the relevance between the story you're telling from the past and what your audience, what your guests are going through and what they may be experiencing. So looking at this movie through that lens, you realize they're looking at the movie through the lens of the entire 30s, the rise of Nazism, the spread of Germany's power over continental Europe, the invasion of France is a huge thing, a huge theme in the movie. Then, of course, the occupation of France by German forces and the free French in North Africa, right. who are really still under the heel of the Nazis. You know, the expatriate Rick, who has worked in the, in, in the Spanish Civil War of the 1930s, which also, you know, had democratic forces against fascist forces, against communist forces. There are all of these grand themes that these people were living with every day that we, well... Maybe we're starting to live with them again. Maybe it's time to look at this movie well, again with new eyes. Well, it's not quite that close. Not quite but that close. But, but, there, but there were very clear labels then. Yes. You know, when you signed on to fight for the, for the Nationalists or for Franco in the Spanish Civil War, it was a very clear statement. There were actual fascists who, who had name badges that said, hello, we are fascists. Exactly. We, we are, are bent on world domination. <laughs> right. Won't you join us or be killed? Exactly. Yes. So all of those things, and with you know Bogart's character, Rick, the, the American who seemingly wants to get involved, but seemingly doesn't want to get involved. You know, it was reflecting the isolationism in America, the feeling that you had to do something. So all of these things are brought together in the different characters in the movie. There's all of these nationalities represented, all of these countries that have fallen fallen to Nazi Germany, who were personified, or people who are resisting, like the Russian character behind the bar, the exuberant Russian guy. It's oh, just Sasha, yes, Sasha, 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 you know, and one of the criticisms of the movie from a cinematic point of view and a script writing is, oh, the character is very simplistic. Yeah, but each character captures a national spirit. And that's the real point, and that's what's going to resonate with the viewer in that time. Ah, there's our friend in Russia who's also standing up, ah, there's our downtrodden friend who managed to escape. That's what's resonating, and so you can say it's shallow characterization from a script writing point of view, maybe, but maybe not. No, and I think that's one of the reasons the movie works so well is because it has those different layers. You can see everyone as a metaphor for a variety of nationalities. You can see everyone as individuals. And it's intermeshed so well, the individual struggle related to the national struggle related to how these different forces interact. And I think that's one of the things that would have resonated with audiences so much back then because it's the early 1940s. It was released in late 42. Late 42, yeah. And so America is already in the war. Well, as a matter of fact, they rush it into release to capitalize on the Allied invasion of North Africa and the liberation of Casablanca. And the, yes, the, the <laughs> Casablanca conference yeah. is very convenient, yeah. which helped boost movie going. But the 
folks going to movies are going just like we do now. They're going to be entertained. There's also sophisticated audiences that are going to, because they're living through this, they're going to pick up on all these different things. You know, one of the things I think is so relevant, and I don't, I don't know personally how much the audience watching the movie would have known about this while they were watching, but we know now, looking back, how many actors and actresses in that movie were actual refugees from German domination in Europe. Right, well, well, Major Strasse, the guy playing Major Strasse, was a refugee from Nazi Germany. Yes. He had fled because he was Jewish and wanted to get out of there, and then he winds up playing Nazis. And, and, and Peter Lorre had left France after the Germans had started to... Re- there, there's, a lo- there's a lot of that. There, the scene where the Germans start singing Wacht am Rhein, you probably know this, yeah, yeah. Uh, with the copyright issues, but, the, but they begin singing the song, The, the Duel of the Anthems. And suddenly the Marseillaise starts to play and the band looks at Rick, (laughs) quote unquote, America. Yes. (laughs) Should we play this? All Rick has to do is give a nod and the entire plays burst into the French national anthem. Well, in reality, on set, according to witnesses who were there, a lot of those people in the crowd were refugees from Europe. And they were literally tearing up yeah. watching this dynamic yeah. go on before them. And that, when I read that, that tore me up. Oh, yeah. And, 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 and for a lot of reasons. Because that scene is symbolic for, for those actual actors on the set, even if it's, you know, the character Rick, played by Humphrey Bogart, is giving the nod, it still resonates as America has signaled it's willing to save the world. And in no unambiguous terms, folks, that's what was going on. Well, then the Soviet Union was helping as well. But uh, of course they teared up. This is such a powerful scene. And in the context of the movie, even though Rick doesn't want to commit, it's showing the unused potential and power of America. Because they are looking to him. The world was looking to them, you know, before the attack on Pearl Harbor. What are you going to do? At what point are you going to actually step in? And that scene is a great encapsulation of that. One of the other times I saw Casablanca, I saw it at a film festival down in Tampa, Florida, at their version of Atlanta's Fox Theater, uh, one of the grand old movie palaces. Watching the thing, and it gets to the end, the scene at the airport. The plane scene, the walking off in the fog scene, beginning of a beautiful friendship, all that. But to me, the cool thing there is Louis starts to pour some uh, spa water into his glass, and he stops, and he looks at it, because the label says Vichy water. And he throws it in disgust into the trash can and kicks it. And I went, yes! And the person beside me went, why'd you say yes? I said, Vichy water. They said, yeah, Vichy water. I'm like, ah! And that's one of the things that a modern audience might not get that, of course, the 1942 audience is because when France fell to Germany in the invasion of 1940, the southern half of France was allowed to, quote, remain France and not be under German occupation, and its government was centered in the town of Vichy. So Vichy France is a symbol of collaboration with the Germans. And so for Louis, who has been, who's certainly been collaborating, collaborating, to finally go, no, I'm done with this collaboration, and hurl the bottle and kick it, I mean, it's wonderful. And that also plays into the invasion of North Africa and the role the French forces played when they rejected the Vichy thing and fought on the side of the Allies. It's filmmaking that is immediate for those people. Everyone watching the film in 1942 and went, yeah, Vichy France! Throw that bottle in the trash! Right, because, and you know, this is something else that perhaps hampers folks today when we study this time period. And we try to express that when we, when we talk to, you know, different groups, uh, adults and kids and things like that. This is 1942 and early 1943. Folks, here in 2018, we know we won the war. Yeah. In 42 and 43, 
you have to put yourself in their frame of mind. Exactly. We don't know who's going to win. We, th we think we're going to win. Right. We hope we do. Right. You know, we're America. We have all the industrial might that we, that we can bring to bear. But the people watching this movie for the first time don't know. That makes them viscerally and literally part of the fight that they're watching on screen. So this is a very inspirational movie. The characterization, the love story is all there. Right. And, and if you don't right. cry at the end, then you're not a real person. <laughs> but the, you know the historical context that it's also trying to to project right. was very immediate, as you say, for these folks. Yeah, and you know immigration and refugees are a big theme in our world yes, today. Well, look at the way this film opens. People stuck in a city that they thought was gonna be a way station to somewhere better. That message, it couldn't be more timeless. I mean, I mean, there it is, right there. And the audience in 1942-43 would have recognized it. That's one of the things that does resonate directly. That's the beautiful thing about the film. Things like Vichy Water references you may not get today, but there are plenty of other references. Like, right. I'm, like I'm basically a refugee stuck in a place without a country are incredibly relevant. The movie just holds up. And I'm one of those that even forgives the woodenness of uh, the, yeah, 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 Paul, yeah, Paul, yeah, Paul Henry, Henry, yeah, yes. the, the Victor Laszlo character. Couldn't be more wooden, couldn't be more stiff. You know, he but, you says know, the director told him yeah, to be there. Yeah, well, maybe he did. But well, the thing is, I think it works. It does work. In a, in a way, it works. You, you have to have this ideal that all of humanity is, the rest of the cast, are sort of striving for. I think it's fine that it's like that because you get plenty of other glimpses of humanity around him. Uh, so I'll forgive him the wooden performance. Go, you know what? It works it for works. for the context and it just makes everyone else look that much better anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about yeah. the, the yeah. papers and how they're, yeah, I mean, they're uh, real and not. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. exactly. Right. Was, was there something literally called letters of transit that if one person right. signed you had carte blanche to go anywhere well, in Europe? No. No. But, are, but is your movement controlled? Absolutely. And, you know, the people on this podcast will discover that we are both nerds. <laughs> My wife got me a book a few Christmases ago called Paperwork of Nazi Germany. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful hardcover book with all these photos. And people, it's a big book about all the different papers, the identification papers, the travel papers. The ability to purchase permits for driving for certain amounts of electricity to own a gun, all the things. So totalitarian fascist regimes tend to require a whole lot of paperwork, as you say, to limit freedoms, to mm -hmm. limit transportation, to limit expression, all these different things. So putting these letters of transit in Casablanca at sort of the center mover, the non-character mover of the story is something people would also relate to. The movie, I think, says that they're signed by General de Gaulle. Uh, yes. <laughs> who is the, the enemy of, of Vichy France and Nazi Germany. <laughs> so those papers, if signed by de Gaulle, would be meaningless. It would be a death sentence to you if you were found yes. with a, by, by a German because, oh, the signature enemy. You must be an enemy too. Yes. Yeah. But also, by the time, of course, the movie comes out, the United States has been at war for almost a year. Rationing has certainly come in. We've started to see our own paperwork yes. overlay of goods that you can use, of how much you can travel. Although our traveling was more limited because you could only get X amount of, of gas. Ration, yes. Yeah, right. You, X amount of gas, X sets of tires, that sort of thing. But it still had the effect of you had to really be cognizant of what your resources were and plan very carefully how are you going to be able to get there and get back? Can you borrow rations from friends? All those things. But that whole framework, that overlay of now there's this level of bureaucracy and paperwork that the American audience would have been familiar with and would have been another bridge for them to go, ah, I, I, yeah, sure, it's hard to move around. I, I get it. But if you get those paper, that golden key, if you get right. those papers, 
you can get out. Right. If you get that extra ration book, or you, you know, <laughs> right. uh, and you and you know much more about the ration system than I do. You've studied yeah, a lot more. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's complicated. But the interesting thing is, every nation that I know of that participated militarily in World War II had some form of rationing. The United States is no exception because when you're fighting a world war at the level that all these other countries were, you have to make sure that all your resources are put exactly where they need to be. Remember, in the 30s and 40s, the United States was the leading oil producer in the world by a <laughs> right. great deal. But we were limited to the, the usual was five gallons of gas per week. Now, that's not because we didn't have enough gas. Gas rationing was actually because of the rubber for the tires. The rubber was the critical mm -hmm. strategic resource that we had to limit. Those tires had to go on military vehicles and, and all that sort of thing. So... But the gas rationing, the food rationing, leather rationing, all was in the United States. Mm -hmm. And, of course, we still comparatively had it pretty good because in the countries that were actually touched by the war and the violence, like England, France, Germany, uh, Italy, Belgium, all, all, the, mm -hmm. all the European countries, rationing could literally be a matter of life and death. And the ability to move from one place to the other unfettered could literally be a, a matter of life and death. Okay, and the ability to, you know, for those in hiding in occupied Europe and France, the ability to manipulate those ration and travel tickets to hide you better. And when Allied pilots were shot down and there was the underground system to get them back to Allied lines or back to freedom, how are you going to travel? I mean, aren't there instances of them using... Oh, forged documents, for, forged, yes. Forged tickets, forged travel tickets. You know, you've got to know how to work the system or make it look like you're working the system. Right, and well, actually, you know, I'm, I'm just now thinking with the letters of transit driving plot so much, that's actually set up perfectly in the first scene where it shows the French police going around yeah. and asking yeah, exactly. for papers, and a fellow's like, oh, I don't see them. I, have I left them at the hotel. Come with us. Oh, wait, oh, here, here they, they are. These <laughs> <laughs> papers are two weeks out of date. Come with us, please. And then he runs, uh, and, and he gets shot. shot. Yep. So... Papers are important. Papers are important. And with rationing, it's pretty much established that Rick's place kind of is beyond the rules of curfew and rationing right. in a certain sense. And it's once again, it's in the context of the movie, they're saying metaphorically, America is beyond those things. America is its own special thing. Right. So Rick's place is its own special thing. It's operating beyond the rules. When does it get touched by the rules? Well, when they finally do close it down because shots have been fired and, you know, America has been shown to be, America, quote Rick, has been shown to be aiding. And then what does that lead to? Involvement. It's subtle touches that are really, really good that don't know how much things like that resonate, but certainly would have been cognizant in the minds of the audience. So if we look at Rick... What do we know of his past? He's American, he's from New York, and how did he spend the 30s? Fighting on the losing side of liberty. Twice, Twice. as they say. Uh, yeah, exactly. You cannot go back to America. The reason is somewhat vague, as Strasser said. It's somewhat vague, right. So, you know, so Rick has clearly been operating outside the rules he was supposed to have been operating in, but in the American spirit, he was going to do it anyway. He was the independent guy. I'm going to fight for what's right. That's hugely symbolic. But then he's also burned by his experiences and doesn't want to get involved. You can read into that the whole, after World War I, America was already clearly the dominant global power, but shrank from it. So Rick's had a bad experience fighting for liberty in the 30s, so now he's backed off. And he doesn't want to commit. And what is it going to take to make him commit again? A dame walking into his gym A dame joint. walking in, exactly. <laughs> or, or, or in other words, an emotional tug, a, a right. visceral appeal. Well, what's more visceral than being attacked by the Japanese at Pearl Harbor? You know, so in other words, you could say Ingrid Bergman is the Japanese attacking <laughs> well, Rick's Pearl Harbor of a heart. <laughs> But we're stretching that a bit, That's probably so too tall. Yes. But it does show that I think we're absolutely valid to say 
that yes, in the in the context of the movie, Rick is the America that's that's waiting for the motivating impulsion that something is going to compel you that's so big you have to act. In his case, it's love. In our case, it was an attack. But either way, the movie's saying America will act. Rick knows what the right it thing knows, to do he is. He knows what the right thing to do is, and he, but he's got to be pushed there. Rick gets pushed and he and he tries to find his way, but I would argue he doesn't make that commitment until he pulls the trigger on Strasser oh, at the airport. Strasser at the That's airport. The, yeah, literally pulls the trigger. Yeah, literally shoots him dead. Yeah, yeah. That, there's no going back. Yeah, because because he's really trying to get them to do it themselves. Get on the plane, fly away, yeah. and I'm going to still go, be here. Just go. Which you know, one could say that was America's policy. Well, we'll kind of help you, but really fight it on your own. No, we have to get involved. Right. We we have to get involved. You know, in, ter- in terms of who plays what, I think it's significant that they made the conscious choice to make everyone except for Rick and Sam not American. Some some European connection that right. that made them in danger of or subject to uh, German domination of the continent. You know, Ilsa is Norwegian. Laszlo is Czechoslovakian. Sasha is Russian. Sasha is Russian. The, the, the elderly couple that's fleeing to America with their jewelry and who practice their English. They're, they're, yes. they're German Jews. Right. right yeah. We got to talk about Sam. When you look at the casting and you look at the characters, as we as we've mentioned, we've got you know Hungarians, French, Russian, Norwegian, German, and of course the, the Americans that stand out: Sam and uh, and Rick. And of course, only one of those guys is the predominant ethnic group in America, and that's you know Rick is the white guy, and Sam is black. So certainly, I don't think Casablanca is the film is trying to say ah and this is how all black men operate in America in 1942 because clearly it isn't but what it is doing in keeping with the overall theme of the different nationalities recognizing a common right to be free of tyranny it's kind of nice that the screenwriters and and the directors they you know didn't tamper with it they're like okay well Sure, Sam works for Rick, but they're basically equals in this film. They interact as equals, which is how Rick interacts with every with other's other employees and how all the other employees interact with each other. There's a very strong egalitarian feeling in this movie that, thankfully, especially for the year it was made in, extends to the black character in the cast, Sam, the black American. He is not castigated, he is not segregated, he is treated with cordiality and familiarity, and by Ilsa, Ingrid Bergman's character even. She is overjoyed to see him and doesn't treat him like a house servant. He's one of the peoples of this world that is Casablanca who just wants to be able to live their life in freedom. Right. It's amazing. He is, I mean, he is deferential to Rick. Sure. But I would not say he is subservient. Exactly. You have to to look at, at not only... The, the culture of the times, but some of those, the rules that the studios had to follow in terms of what could happen to specific characters. Right. For example, it was never a possibility that Ilsa could leave Laszlo because the moral safeguards of the time yeah. prevented a movie from showing a married woman leaving her husband. The censors would eliminate that from the movie. They would say, you've got to rewrite it. I know they made several of the lines be rewritten in Casablanca. They might have used a curse word. <laughs> they might have, oh, well, my personal favorite character character by Claude Rains. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Apparently, his, his, you know, his character sold visas in exchange for sexual favors from female refugees. Yes, he did. He did. <laughs> and he was quite good at it. But they had to really tone that down when, when they were making the movie because the... Uh, so it was never directly said, but heavily implied. It was, yes. In the original script, which of course was based on a, on a play that was never produced, it was, it was stated. Right. It was made very obvious. In the, in the movie, it became much more of an, of an implication. I think the movie too, and you know, we're talking about moral compasses and everything, and 
we've said Rick knows what is right, but he's not quite ready to act on it. Right. Louie, as far as <laughs> morality goes, like I said, he's my favorite. The character is delightful. And I've been thinking of exactly how his morality plays into the larger milieu that we're discussing in terms of if a character represents a nationality or a subset of a nationality. Mm-hmm. How does Louis fit into all this? Because Louis is the divided France. France is literally divided, so Louis is divided and he also knows the right thing to do. But because he's representing occupied and unoccupied France, he's far more at ease with what he feels he needs to do to get along. Absolutely, he still fits in. He, he, he is a divided character who ultimately chooses the right thing. Right. But unlike Rick, who isn't necessarily divided, you know, Rick's carved out his own little world. <laughs> Louis is Louis. definitely reveling well, he says, in, in one of his worlds. I follow the wind. The wind currently he's is blowing, blowing from Vichy. Uh, what if it went to change? Oh, surely, Vichy, uh, surely Berlin doesn't admit that possibility. <laughs> That's, that is such a brilliantly written character. It really is. All those lines. From the time I was able to watch it and understand what was going on on the screen, because when I said I was in you know, middle school, I was seriously like in eighth grade. Right. Um, but once I started getting it, I'm like, he's just my favorite. When the Germans, you know, Gestapo spank, when mm-hmm. the Germans tell him to shut this down, but for what reason? Everyone's having such a good time. Find a reason. Right. He's shocked, shocked to find that gambling is going on. You're winning, sir. Oh, thank you. Everybody else. Humor like that is all the way through it. Even in little throwaway things, like when uh, Major Strasse is interrogating Rick, he asks him why he's in Casablanca. He said, well, I'm here for the waters. Waters? There are no healing waters. I was misinformed. <laughs> he just, it doesn't crack a smile. Does it? Doesn't. And just, that's, you know, just keeps looking at him. It's just brilliant. It's like, I, w- I wish all of the conversations I have with people could be that smooth <laughs> exactly. in reality. I need the, exactly. the Epstein brothers to write the script of my life. <laughs> right. To kind of bring things back around and, and close it up. For this, our first glorious episode of <laughs> Then Again with Ken and Glenn. So I was told when I went to college, what's the difference between literature and just, and just writing? Literature rewards further reflection. And I think Casablanca fits into that from so many different categories. And of course, the American Film Institute has looked at it as a film again and again and again the cinematography, the lighting, the acting, everything. But it also rewards further reflection when you place it into the time in which it happened and that it reflects because it literally is a time capsule. If you want to know what people's thoughts, fears, hopes, dreams, loves were at the very beginning of the Second World War, all you have to do is watch Casablanca. You can extrapolate from that what movies are you dear listeners, going out to see today, they're going to hold up to that test of longevity and time. 50 years, 40 years on down the road, Transformers 3, will that be telling the story of America in 20-whatever? God, I hope not. But uh, <laughs> but seriously, e- yeah. every film, if it is at all in touch with its time and its place, is going to be just as much a story about the audience it was intended for as it is about the story on the screen. That's a great way to look at things. So, that's all from us from here for now, and join us next time when our topic will be Game of Thrones, the history connection. Dun, 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 dun. So it should be a good time. We hope to see you then. And uh, until those moments, anticipate it greatly. <laughs> then Again with Ken and Glenn is produced by the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. 